Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you again for opportunity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, when we reflect on life, we know that it's a series of decisions. But when we come to any decision time, it's like standing at a crossroad, isn't it? Because one road will be travelled while the other one's left behind. The choice of one inevitably means the rejection of another. Now, in Hebrews 3, 7 to 4, 13, the bit we're not going to look in in detail, but it's a crossroad decision facing the first readers. That's the way it's sort of being presented. And the author is seeking to highlight it by looking at it through the lens of Israel's experience as they journey to the promised land. And their experience is spotlighting the life or death nature of the decision. So by revisiting Israel's decision, the author calls those he cares about to make their crossroads decision. And it's a serious decision, reinforced by the words from Psalm 95. When I was growing up, we used to have Psalm 95 every Sunday at morning prayer services. And we had to sing it. Well, somehow. Um, and when I started leading services as uh, um, sort of towards the end of my teen years, I then had to try and sing it and lead the singing. And I'm a hopeless singer, so it was terrible. So we just as well, we didn't have to sing it today and it was so brilliantly read to us. But let me remind you of key words in that psalm about the decision. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to test, put me to proof, though they'd seen my works, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Now the psalm is really picking up Israel's experience, Israel's decision at Kadesh Barnea. They knew God's promises regarding the land of Canaan, They'd seen his faithfulness through all the events of the Exodus, from the plagues, through the crossing of the Red Sea, through the manna in the wilderness and so on. But now on the very edge of entering into the promised land, who were they going to listen to? Was it going to be the voice of the spies who reported, oh, they're big walled cities and they're big people? Or God's voice? anchored in his promise and faithfulness. Israel at the crossroads tragically chooses to listen to the voice of men. Hence they leave behind the voice of God, displaying contempt for his promise. And as they refuse to believe in God, the Exodus generation fails to enter the promised land. And they perish in the wilderness. Now the present experience of the readers of Hebrews, the original readers of Hebrews, the author is saying, corresponds to that of Israel encamped on the borders of Canaan. For his readers have been called, like Israel, to live according to God's promise. 
the promise of salvation established through Jesus Christ. The promise, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, validated by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit, as we saw in chapter 2. So they are similarly at a critical decision point, a crossroads choice. Will they hold firmly to the promise of salvation in Christ? Will they remain committed even in the face of public humiliation or even loss of life? Will they identify as Christians or retreat into the relative safety of Judaism? Now the author sets that crossroad decision of the readers in the context of God's faithfulness as explained in those chapters 3 and 4. And the author has been showing how the faithfulness of Jesus, our high priest, provides a firm basis for continued loyalty to God. The Exodus generation proved unfaithful by choosing to distrust God and so they were excluded from the promised land. See, the author is using Israel's experience to warn the readers. He's saying to them, don't follow Israel's example of unbelief, of distrust. Follow Christ. So that comes to the final part of chapter 4, which we're going to look at in more detail. It is a passage which is, in a sense, driving home why the first readers and us can decide for the superior Jesus Christ. So these few verses are concluding what the author's been saying up to this point, but they also, in a sense, transition us into the next part of the book from chapters 5 to 10. It's a short passage. It's comforting, but also very challenging. So come with me again to verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Right? The therefore is drawing us back, drawing us back to the priesthood theme of Jesus begun back in chapter 2, but also drawing us into the truths he's been explaining along the way. So Jesus is greater than the angels, Chapter 1, verses 5 to the end. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3, 1 to 6. And he's also able to give a better rest than Joshua, which comes up in the first part of chapter 4. On the basis of all that, the reader is saying, hold fast, hold fast to your confession of Christ. See, don't turn your back on the one who's given you such a great salvation. Keep pressing on. Don't abandon your confession. That would be folly because Jesus is the Son of God. So be warned. If you renounce him, you'll be cut off from God. It's like Jesus says in Mark 8, if you're ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you when I return. So there's a strong warning here. We need to hold on to Jesus because he has passed through the heavens. In other words, he's entered into the very presence of God. And he's done that by virtue of his sacrifice. 
a key theme in the second part of the book, highlighted in chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. So as the Son of God, he is superior to the angels and to Moses. And as a result, he's brought believers near to God. Hence, they in the past and we in the present can have fellowship with the living God. It's a wonderful truth to keep reflecting on. Jesus' accomplishments as the great high priest and the son of God provide the readers with every reason to cling on to their confession of Christ and not to give it up. The song we sang earlier on talked about 10,000 reasons, didn't it? Well, they're all bottled up in what Jesus has done. Now, when the author talks about confession here, it's a bit like a, a shorthand for the faith the readers have embraced and have been committed to uphold, promised to uphold. So there, our confession isn't merely agreeing to some set of doctrines about Jesus as the Son of God, as Jesus as our great high priest. It's much more than that. You see, it's clinging on to the Jesus who's secured our access to God's presence. And that access isn't available by any other person or any other means. Remember Jesus' words? I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if the readers turn away from Jesus' priestly sacrifice, if they think they can find long-lasting forgiveness in the Old Testament sacrificial system, then the consequence of their crossroads choice is simply this. They'll be cut off, estranged from God. Now it's a very confronting challenge, isn't it? It would have been confronting to the original readers and it's confronting to us, isn't it? See, it's saying to us, are we firmly holding on to our confession of Christ? Are we refusing to compromise in a world increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and its moral values? Are we refusing to compromise in a world increasingly demanding inclusiveness at the expense of absolute truth? You see, it's quite a challenge. Now, I haven't got a clue about most of your circumstances, but I know there's some people at university, and university these days is a very trying experience in terms of the views around. I remember when I was doing some um, doctoral studies at Armidale University, the, the pressure to include queer theory Feminist theory, this theory, that theory. Very hard to present a Christian ethical worldview as I was doing. It's, there's pressures like that all the time. Pressures in the workforce, isn't it, in various places. Education today. Lots of struggles there, isn't it? In the legal world. There's increasing pressures there, isn't it? Is there justice or is there truth? So wherever we are, whatever circumstances we're in, 
the pressure is on us to compromise our faith. Will we hold firmly to the confession of Christ? That's why we need to keep coming to church, isn't it? To keep encouraging one another to hang in there (laughs) and not give up. Well, from there, the author takes on the nature of Jesus' high priesthood. Let's hear verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Even though Jesus has entered into God's presence, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he still identifies with human beings. He's taken his humanity with him. So Jesus isn't only the majestic high priest sitting at God's right hand, but he's the tender high priest because he sympathises with us in our weaknesses. And the word sympathy here isn't limited to compassion and empathy, for it speaks also of Jesus' ability to help those who are afflicted. And that's picked up later again in chapter 10 as well. Friends, our high priest suffers together with those being tested, bringing active assistance. As a man, Jesus knows the frailties and groaning intrinsic to fallen human nature. He shared a real human life just like we do. So when we're treated with contempt, he experiences the humiliation we feel. When we're bruised, He feels the pain because he's able to feel our weaknesses with us. That's why his high priestly intercession on our behalf is so effective. It's amazing when you ponder it, isn't it? The majestic, exalted high priest is willing and able to help those who are helpless. Friends, Jesus' own experience of suffering and trials endured during his earthly life equipped him to be able to offer true empathy. Jesus was tested in every way. He was susceptible to the full range of temptations associated with the weaknesses of inherent human frailty. And so he's uniquely able to identify with his disciples, those who love and serve him. So as the author of Hebrews calls his readers to this crossroads point of decision, he's doing so by reminding them about Jesus and Jesus' life experiences. As you read through the book, the sort of questions that he's really posing them is things like this. Are you required to renew your commitment to God every day? Well, that was true of Jesus. Are you being asked to trust God in difficult circumstances? Well, Jesus definitely was. Could you be subject to sudden arrest? Well, that certainly happened to Jesus. Could you be unjustly condemned to a humiliating death? That's exactly what Jesus faced. A friend of mine, when they were first missionaries in a remote area of Pakistan and they were still learning the language. A guy came into their, sort of where they were holding church, 
He said to my friend Sam, he said, I want to become a Christian. And Sam wasn't quite on top of the language, so he said, oh, this would be a great opportunity to see what an elder here in the church would be able to explain the gospel. And so he brought this fellow to elder in the church and said, this guy wants to become a Christian. And Sam's waiting and waiting. And the elder turns to this guy and says, when you're prepared to lose your job, your house, your family and your life, come back and I'll tell you how to become a Christian. It's a very confronting challenge, isn't it? Are we prepared to stand for Jesus no matter what? But in the midst of all those temptations that Jesus experienced, there's a huge difference to us, isn't there? For though tempted, he was without sin. He remained faithful to the one who had appointed him. And though Jesus shared in our weakness and frailty, he didn't, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. And that theme of the sinlessness of Jesus is like a thread weaving its way through the New Testament because it's key for his death for us. Even when it's not directly stated, it's presupposed. But you find all the apostles writing, so you find um, people like John and Paul and Peter all writing about it, Luke, Paul's travelling companion, all through the New Testament you find the same thing. You see, sin isn't intrinsic to human nature. God didn't create us that way. In other words, fallen human beings are less than human because the true human is Jesus. The more we're like Jesus, the more human we are because he is the true, perfect human, the true image of of God. Sin is not part of his nature. That's why he never sins. So as we grow in Christ, we grow in our humanity. We become more and more human. It's not the way we commonly think about it, is it? Jesus is the perfect human. And then our little passage ends in verse 16 with a call to prayer, isn't it? And that call to prayer is anchored in the encouragement of Jesus as our sympathising high priest that we saw in verse 15. Let me read verse 16 again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the way in which the author is expressing himself could be rephrased like this to bring out the emphasis. Let us again and again and again and again draw near to the throne of grace with a bold and joyful confidence. See, the book of Hebrews is encouraging the Christians to approach the throne of grace boldly with joyful confidence. Why? Because of Christ's earthly ministry. His high priestly work completed by his shed blood on the cross. Remember back in chapter 1 where it began, at the very end of those opening verses, after he'd made purification for sins, he, 
What? Sat down. His work completed. See, the Old Testament priests never sat down because there was always more sacrifices to make. The work was never completed. But right at the very beginning, we're reminded of those words of Jesus from the cross, in effect, isn't it? Remember his words? It is finished. See? What a superior privilege granted through Jesus. And what a contrast to the shadow of Judaism. Remember that under the old covenant, only the high priest could have preached could approach the symbol of God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But more than that, he had to actually offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he sacrificed for the nation. And when that high priest's ministry of atonement was accepted, then and only then did the altar of judgment become the place where grace was dispensed to Israel. But now, you see what the author of Hebrews say? But now we can draw near to God, enter his throne room boldly, because in Jesus it's a throne room of grace, not wrath. And so we can confidently and gladly receive from God his mercy the mercy assuring us of sins forgiven in Christ, while in God's grace we find the strength and power to deal with every situation in life, the inner enabling that gives us the strength to endure through all the testing and temptations we'll ever face. Hebrews spotlights the life-saving achievement of the superior high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so the author is saying to those first readers and to us, Christians, people of the new covenant, now experience something Israel never did. The joy of immediate and continual access to the great living God. No wonder he says it's so foolish to retreat from that, isn't it? <laughs> Why would you want to go back to the shadow when the reality is here? Or in words he's previously talked about in chapter 2, don't step back into the prison of the devil bound by the fear of death, rather cling on to the forgiveness and eternal life that we have in Jesus. Friends, these few verses really are among the most comforting verses in the whole Bible because Christians suffer from all the temptations and agonies that characterise life in a fallen world. Yet because of Jesus, our great high priest, we're able to receive sympathy and grace and mercy in times of distress and trial. What a wonderful blessing that we have as we seek to live faithful lives in a world that's trying to mould us into its image. And so Hebrews calls its readers both then and now 
to not shrink back from God's presence, but rather to keep approaching him gladly and confidently. And he offers mercy and grace. He longs for us to know his forgiveness and power in every circumstance of life that comes in and through Jesus. So we need to rejoice and to give thanks for Jesus, the great high priest who is our saviour, as verse 14 reminded us, challenging us to hold fast to our confession. He's our sympathiser, as verse 15 reminded us, the one knowing our weaknesses, yet still caring for us. And thirdly, our strengthener, verse 16, with a call to persistent and confident prayer. May God bless us through his word. Amen. Please stand and we will sing before the throne of God above.
Um, say uh, the Philippians Creed together now. Now, there's a number of creeds we say um, here that are statements of truth, what we believe in the, from the Bible. Um, the other ones, though, are, you know, statements from the whole Bible. Um, well, sorry, truths from the whole Bible, whereas Philippians is literally just taken out of the, book, uh, the letter to the Philippians, so, which is amazing. So you can just go and read this. Um, let's say it together. Jesus Christ, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Sorry, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We're going to have a time of prayer in a moment, so um, please, please sit down. And together we will say the Lord's Prayer before we move into that. Let's let's that together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Please continue to join me in prayer. Father, we, we lift up um, the situation in, in Syria and Turkey to you and the devastation that's occurred there. We pray that you would uh, be with those who are, are displaced and without shelter, with food and the basics that they need. Father, we do pray uh, and we thank you for the, for the aid that 